Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Antikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, July uh, the 9th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in this program, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the continuing instability in Sri Lanka, uh, where the president has announced he will step down later this month. Japan is mourning the assassination of former President Shinzo Abe, uh, who was killed uh, while campaigning for his party on Friday in Japan. Ethiopia and the African Union have embarked upon a new health initiative for the continent. We'll have details on that as well. And the former president of the Republic of Angola, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, has died uh, at the age of 79. We'll have... um, discussions and uh, analysis of his uh, contributions to the African Revolution. In the second hour, we look at the reaction in Africa to the death of uh, former President Dos Santos. Finally, we will examine some of the major issues impacting Africa and the world today. These and other features will be brought to you uh, on the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We're going to, of course, uh, bring you our musical interlude, and uh, of course, we are going uh, to the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania, uh, to the Zanzibar Islands, for uh, the music Hot and Dar. Let's listen in.
Why 
kusarena wa kutumia sana sasa sasa pesa sina na marafiki zangu sijaona hata mmoja nyumbani kwangu aje kunitembelea sijui tunafanyaje eh basi mwana katibu ndio mkubwa huo na kweli katibu wewe eh hebu fanya shilingi moja hapo basi nakwambia nimewaka ile kumbu
lakini nimeshindwa sijui nifanyeje
And uh, that was uh, classic uh, Pan-African music from the United Republic of Tanzania and, uh, of course, uh, from the region of Zanzibar. Hot and Dar is the name of that uh, collection of illustrious uh, African music. Yes, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday July 9th, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to another edition of our program. We're going to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current political crisis in uh, the South Asian state of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapatka, uh, will step down on July 13th, uh, which is only four days away. Uh, according uh, to news agencies, uh, they said this earlier today, uh, they were citing Speaker Mahinda Yapa Abewardena. According uh, to the international press, Raja Paska uh, has informed uh, that he will resign on July the 13th. Uh, earlier today, an emergency meeting of the leaders of political parties chaired by Speaker of the Sri Lankan Parliament, uh, Mahinda Yapa Abin Wardena, uh, was held in the wake of mass protests. The participants uh, in the meeting agreed that incumbent President Gotabaya Rajapasa and Prime Minister Ranil Rikremishenge uh, will, should resign and uh, that the Speaker of the Parliament should take over as provisional president for no longer than 30 days. Sri Lanka's parliament will elect for the remaining term. Additionally, the meeting rule to appoint a provisional all-party government and to hold elections in the near future. Earlier in the day, uh, thousands of protesters took to the streets of Colombo, demanding that uh, Raja Pasa's resignation. Uh, they stormed his residence and then the prime minister's residence in temple trees, uh, which they later set it on fire. Over 30 people were injured in the protest. Uh, Wicking Reem Singh announced amid the rebellion that would uh, step down. The protests sparked by financial and economic crises have engulfed the country since early April. As Wickram Misenge told the international press in an exclusive interview, Sri Lanka is hit hard by the worst crisis in modern history, and the Allah's nation's politicians did not find the parallels to such a crisis in this century or in the last century or the century before. According to the Prime Minister, the country is currently in the middle of the crisis. Uh, Wickwim Misenge uh, pointed out that Sri Lanka was facing severe shortages of foreign currencies, fuel and petroleum products, fertilizers, food for some groups of the population, and medicines. According to its estimates, it would take three years or even more to recover from economic crisis. And another news from Sri Lanka. The uh, head of state, uh, Gotabaya Rajapasa, managed to leave the residence minutes before demonstrators got to its territory, a, a defense ministry source reported. Protesters did break into the Sri Lankan president, Gotabaya Rajapasa's residence. That's according to the international press. They reported this earlier today. The head of state managed to leave the residence minutes before demonstrators got to its territory, a defense ministry said. Rajapasa 
is still considered the country's president, and he is currently protected by the military, the same source told uh, the various news agencies. Since early April, Sri Lanka has been hit by protests against the deteriorating living conditions. The lack of fuel, food, and essentials, Sri Lanka is experiencing its worst economic crisis since independence in 1948. It resulted from a contraction of foreign tourism due to the pandemic, which led to the shortage of foreign currency reserves in the country. In this environment, the authorities were forced to cut imports and introduce tight resources and savings. External debt, which totals 51 billion U.S. dollars, hinders Sri Lanka's making external borrowing and struggling against the economic crisis. And in other news in Asia, the funeral of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated just yesterday, will take place on July the 12th. That's according to the Kyoto News Agency. The agency also added that the funeral would be organized at Shinzo Abe's hometown in Shimonoskia, uh, Yamaguchi Prefecture. The 67-year-old politician was assassinated in the city of Nara at about noon on July the 8th as he was delivering a political campaign speech ahead of the country's parliamentary election schedule for July 10th. Tetsuya Yamagami, a 41-year-old Japanese national, fired two shots at the former prime minister using a homemade firearm. Abe uh, was immediately rushed to a hospital by helicopter he received a blood transfusion. Doctors fought for his life for several hours, but we were unable to save him, they said. The assailant said later that he was frustrated with Abe's politics and conduct, and that he had nothing against the former prime minister's political views. Now, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, will not attend the funeral of Japan's former prime minister, Shinzei Abe. A criminal spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, told the TASS news agency, Putin, no. Uh, the rest depends on protocol rules, he said, when asked about the participation of Russia's representatives. Kyoto's news agency reported earlier in the, the funeral of Shinzo Abe would take place on July 12th in his hometown of Shimon Nasuke in the Ramaguchi Prefecture. The 67-year-old politician was assassinated in the city of Nara, on July the 8th, as he was delivering a political campaign speech ahead of the country's parliamentary elections scheduled uh, to come up tomorrow. Earlier, Peskov told reporters the Kremlin deeply regretted the death of former Japanese Prime Minister and expressed his condolences to the people of Japan. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In other news taking place on the African continent, in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, the government and the African Union Commission, which is based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, have uh, jointly launched the 2022 African Year of Nutrition and Food Security in Ethiopia. During the launching ceremony uh, just this last past Thursday, uh, Ethiopian Health Minister Leah Tadesi, uh, who is a medical doctor, said that the program is timely and such joint launch would catalyst the national-level commitment to food and nutrition and exchange. It was learned that the program has been launched under the theme, utilize the 2022 African Union Year of Nutrition to showcase the Sokota Declaration and galvanize continental efforts in expanding successful governmental efforts towards ending stunning 
in Africa. While much progress has been done in Africa to tackle malnutrition in all its forms, the Global Nutrition Report indicates that malnutrition rates across Africa remains unacceptably high. Uh, children ages uh, infants to five years old are suffering from stunting. Women are particularly at risk across Africa, with more than 40% of women of reproductive age suffering from anemia. The minister noted that Ethiopia showed strong commitment by releasing a joint position statement by the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Health in support of Africa's year of nutrition and food security implementation. The government of Ethiopia reaffirmed that the theme will have a catalytic effect on its commitment to addressing and and nutrition insecurity as one of the priority development areas for the country. Following the declaration, Ethiopia has been working with the African Union Commission to develop the roadmap and implementation plan where two activities incorporated to advance the Sokota Declaration commitment, Leah said. Commissioner for Health, Humanitarian, and Social Development Ambassador Manati Samate said on the occasion that the Sokota Declaration is the clear demonstration of the commitment of the Ethiopian government to end stunning and malnutrition. These bold initiatives prioritize high-level action to address malnutrition across the African continent and will drive increased political momentum for nutrition nationally and regionally in Africa. The African Year of Nutrition and Food Security 2022 has reaffirmed the commitment of African countries to advance their nutrition goals. And this followed with a clear investment from the domestic budget and alignment of investors behind these country-defined priorities. The minister has called upon the stakeholders, development partners, donors, and others to sustain the technical and financial support for the successful of the strategy. Sharing the government of Ethiopia's commitment to food and nutrition strategy and food system transformation and related experiences showcased the Sokota Declaration Innovation Phase learning and to catalyze the implementation of the expansion phase among the government sectors and development partners. And if you want to read this article in its entirety, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Newswire. And, of course, in the southern African state of Angola, a tall tree has fallen. Angola's former president, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, died just yesterday at the age of 79 at a hospital in Barcelona, Spain. After suffering cardiac arrest, the government says, with uh, great pain and consternation, the Luanda government posted on Facebook con- confirmation of the Dos Santos' death at 11.10 a.m. or 10.10 Greenwich Mean Time. The government presents its deepest feelings of sorrow to the bereaved family. Statement read, describing the former leader as a statesman of great historical stature who led the country through very difficult times. Dos Santos ruled the Portuguese-speaking oil-rich state of Angola for 38 years before stepping down in September of 2017. He was hospitalized in Spain and placed in intensive care after suffering a cardiac arrest on June the 23rd. And we'll have more information on uh, the death of the former Angolan president, uh, Eduardo Jose dos Santos, later in this edition of the Pan-African Journal. With that, we want to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners 
Pan African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, the program uh, that you're listening to right now, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, the program can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can be copied and posted into other blogs and websites, as well as being shared on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, uh, July the 9th, uh, 2022, uh, we're broadcasting live from my studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break uh, with the legendary Curtis Mayfield. We'll be back.
The legendary uh, Curtis Mayfield uh, with the song entitled We Gotta Have Peace. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, we received news uh, just uh, yesterday uh, that uh, the former Republic of Angolan President, uh, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, a wartime president uh, who took over in the aftermath of the death of Dr. Astino NATO in 1979, uh, led the country through tumultuous times, uh, also providing international solidarity uh, to struggles uh, throughout uh, the region of Southern Africa and Namibia, public of South Africa. Of course, uh, the Jose Eduardo dos Santos uh, legacy will be enduring. And uh, we want to, uh, of course, listen uh, to uh, some audio files uh, discussing uh, the late president and his contributions to the African Revolution. The ANC military wing MK was assisted by Angola's MPLA to fight the then apartheid government in South Africa. At that time, South Africa supported the late former opposition leader, Jonas Savimbi, who was engaged in a civil war in that country. Let's discuss the role of the MPLA in the liberation of what was known as the frontline states. We are now joined by ANC International Relations Subcommittee Chair, Lindiwe Zulu. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Let's begin our conversation with you know you're one of those of of the people who was in exile let's share then uh, in fact with the viewers tonight the support the ANC received in Angola um, thank you very much Bonnie and your viewers um, it, uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity because while we are mourning the death of um, um, uh, president the former president Eduardo Jose, Eduardo dos Santos we also recall it's an opportune moment for us to recall the support that we received um, from Angola and the support that we received in ensuring that we fight from a military point of view. We fight the apartheid regime, but also it gave us it gives us an opportunity to recall the fact that the apartheid regime, as you clearly indicated, was extended in fighting us through UNITA and UNITA rebels. This is a story that for me has still yet to be told because we lost quite a lot of our comrades on the way when we were attacked by UNITA rebels who had been like an extension of the apartheid regime to deal with us while we were there. Their slogan was, kill them before they get to South Africa to kill us. And the Angolans suffered immensely, you know, as they sheltered and supported the liberation organization. For example, you look at the Kuito Kanavale battle, you know, where the MPLA uh, soldiers led during the battle. Let's talk about that very briefly. Yes, be before we even talk about Kuito Kanavale, which was a determining uh, a platform in as far as the liberation of uh, uh, Namibia was concerned, mm. we talk also about the fact that there are many villagers who we live next to within um, the camps who were killed by UNITA rebels, number one. Number two, villagers who suffered because they had to support us and assist us in everything that we were doing. And that's why I'm saying that is yet another, a story that needs to be told because there's a lot of Angolans who, who died for our liberation, and I'm sure that as you read the statement of the African National Congress, it referred 
to the suffering of the Angolan people. And by the way, mm-hmm. it was not only for the ANC, it was also for the ANC, ZAPO, as well as SAPO, SWAPO, because if we recall in history, the liberation of Namibia had to be discussed, and as the African National Congress and UM Condolences were in particular, one of the conditions was that we withdraw from Angola, hence we left Angola and went to places like Tanzania and Uganda. And throughout that period, it is the support of MPLA and the support of Jose Eduardo dos Santos in leadership that played a very important role in his relationship with the leadership of the African National Congress, but as well as the leadership of Umkondo Wesizwe at the time. And while we talk about uh, President uh, Dos Santos's legacy, others are looking at you know one part, and you know especially coming at the back of what you're talking about. But others are saying, you know, he should be criticised for plundering the resources of his country. Even some going as far as saying that he plundered them so much so that he even had to go and be treated in Barcelona and not in his own country, and saying that there's nothing uh, to celebrate there. What is your reaction to that? Well, when you have a nation that does not see a reason to celebrate liberation, when you have a nation that does not recognize the support that we, did, that we got for the liberation, it calls for us to have a deep conversation about our liberation struggle and where we are today. But it further also calls for a deeper um, discussion with regard to leadership itself, because in hindsight, there's a lot of things that can be said. But right now, as the African National Congress, we are, we are saluting somebody when the chips were down, when everything was difficult for us, was there politically, socially, and militarily, because it is a history that will still be told about how we lived in Angola, and how we supported not only by the Santos and MPLA, we were also supported by other countries uh, who at the time were supporting us in order for us to get rid of an apartheid colonial system. That task was completed. If we then have to discuss about what happened post that liberation, that's a different discussion altogether that I don't think anyone of us would fear even getting into conversation because History is not meant for only the past. History is meant in order to assist us towards the future to say, fine, you liberated the country. What then happened in building institutions of governance? What then happened during that time and what did leadership do during that time? And if leadership at some point did not do something that is felt like by others that it shouldn't have happened, that is what we need to put on the table and have a different conversation altogether. Right now, the man, the person who supported our liberation struggle, who not only supported the liberation struggle for South Africa, supported the liberation struggle against Ian Smith in Zimbabwe, supported Mm. the liberation struggle in Mozambique against the very same Portuguese that had been occupying Angola. Now, right now this is what we are, we are looking at, and we send our condolences, obviously, to the family and the people of, of, of Angola. And uh, before we, we end off this conversation, uh, earlier on in the bulletin, we were showing uh, the viewers visuals of Sri Lanka. This has also led to a culmination of a hashtag, for example, that is now trending, which is union buildings. People are restless, they're upset, and they 
say that maybe it is time to, uh, you know, go to the union buildings. They're upset about the rising cost of living, the energy crisis, and all of that. And they say that government is not taking them seriously. You are part of the governing party. How is the ANC responding to this restlessness? Absolutely. I can say if people are unhappy, the whole world, by the way, is unhappy with the rising food crisis and all. Everyone is happy with the rate of unemployment and all. And I can say as a member of the African National Congress and as a member of cabinet, we take our people very seriously. That is why, for instance, under the period of um, COVID-19, we had to sit and look at how else do we change the situation and support our people across the board, whether it was business, whether it was in the social sector, whether it was the petrol itself that actually rose and we had to sit down and say, how do we address it? Even now, we shall do exactly the same. It's, we are committed to ensuring that we discuss and we engage and we always find solutions to mm -hmm. our problems. We you are a United Nation that needs us all to put our heads together to say how do we deal with the global challenges that are facing the entire world. How do we as South Africans come together and make sure that even the mistakes that are being made, how do we correct them to make sure that our country is not seen in a negative light, not only by ourselves and our people, but the world in general. You mentioned COVID-19. We saw the president giving regular updates about how the country was responding to this crisis, yet his voice is missing when it comes to addressing the country about this uh, you know, energy crisis. When is he going to address the nation? definitely the president will be coming out because in order for the president to address the nation, even with regard to COVID-19, we had special meetings at, at NCCC and Met Joints and all where we needed to sit down and, and, and plan properly so that we communicate to the people something that people can believe in and something that we are also going to be able to do. Watch the space. The president is going to be uh, making the same family meeting that he had before, he will be doing that because he has already long directed us, all of us, to say, come back to me and tell me what exactly needs to be done to deal with the crisis that the country is facing. So you're basically saying then, finally, that those who are restless must hold off a little bit. The, the president will be addressing the nation soon because we are seeing quite a lot of, you know, restless sentiment on the ground. We appreciate and understand why there is restlessness because the, the economy hasn't been doing very well. People are suffering because petrol prices have gone up. Um, uh, uh, food prices have gone up. We are very conscious of that. And I'm saying to you, the president will be coming out and addressing the nation as we have done. So because we believe we learned a lot through COVID-19. The fact that we had those communications and the fact that we had a family meeting which resonated very well with our people, the same will have to continue because we need to reassure our people that we do everything we can to ensure that we lighten the difficult life that they are having. And how important then is it going to be for also those who are deployed into these various portfolios to speak in one voice? Because we've also seen a pulling in different directions between, uh, for example, the Mineral Resources Department as well as the Energy Department. How important is it going to be for the ANC deployees to be able to speak in one voice so we can see this problem resolved? 
It has always been very important for us to be seen to be speaking on one voice because that's exactly the reason why we have a government and we have cabinet where the president calls us. We have cabinet meetings where we have those discussions about different issues. And one of the issues that has already been dealt with is uh, messages that are conflicting. You are not going to hear nor see any conflicting messages here on, especially after the president, President Sidramaposenta, has directed us not to do that because it is not in the interest of South Africans. It is not even in the interest of government. It is not in the interest of the African National Congress at all. All right. So we appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much for talking to us. That was Lindy Wazulu, uh, Social Development Minister, as well as Chair of uh, the ANC's International Relations uh, Subcommittee. Welcome back. And uh, that was... Uh a report uh, from uh, the South African Broadcasting Corporation interviewing an ANC official about uh, the death of um, former President Angola President Jorge Aguero dos Santos. And unfortunately, the discussion went uh, to domestic issues um, through the SABC, unfortunately. Uh, this is the direction that we see uh, going uh, with the SABC um, rather than discuss uh, the contributions of the Angolan people, their government, to the liberation of Southern Africa. Let's listen to another report. Uh, this one is on the ANC sending its condolences uh, to uh, the Angolan people. The ANC has extended its condolences to both the people of Angola and Japan after the death of uh, their former leaders. ANC spokesperson Pulemave says the former Angolan president, Jose Dos Santos, uh, played an important role in the liberations of countries known as the frontline states. On the assassination of the former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, Mabe says uh, they hope that this tragedy will not play itself out in other countries. We deep our revolutionary banner. Uh, having learned of the passing on of uh, the former president of uh, Angola, Jose dos Santos. Um, the MPLA uh, occupied a special place uh, in the liberation of uh, South Africa's people uh, under the reign of uh, dos Santos. They provided training militarily uh, to soldiers of uh, combatants of um, Kondo Wesizwe who alongside FAPLA, which is the People's Liberation uh, Army of uh, the MPLA of Angola, worked to defeat uh, the apartheid uh, machinery in what was to be known as the Battle of uh, Kwetokani Valley. Many of our comrades, cadres, uh, stayed in Angola. They were given homes there under DuSantos. So we owe a debt of gratitude to the people of Angola understanding the significant role that they occupied in our national liberation project. But we've also learned of the news and we're quite uh, shocked, uh, more so because the Prime Minister is said to have been assassinated while he was uh, on a campaign trail. Uh, we believe in a, a free space to campaign. We believe in democracy in this country. and. Uh, what will urge the people of Japan and elsewhere in the world is uh, that they must uh, exercise maximum tolerance. Even if you do not agree uh, with your opponent, you do not agree uh, with the ideals that they are pursuing, driving out there, 
as a peace-loving nation, peace-loving people, we ought to show maximum tolerance. We hope that those things are not going to be replaying themselves uh, in other parts of the world. We convey our condolences to the family of the former prime minister and to the entirety of the people of Japan. We call for peace and tolerance. That was another segment uh, from um, uh, one of the leading officials of the ruling uh, African National Congress. And, uh, of course, talking about the international solidarity in relationship to uh, the Republic of Angola, which uh, the late President uh, Jose Eduardo dos Santos exemplified uh, coming to power in 1979 after the death of Dr. Augustino Neto. And, of course, uh, the 1975 uh, crisis in Angola. Uh, the Cuban intervention, the support of the progressive and revolutionary states throughout African, progressive and revolutionary forces throughout the world between 1975 and um, the early 1990s, actually, uh, even though the South African Defense Forces were decisively defeated uh, in 1998 in Angola. Uh, there was a process of um, negotiation, political transition, in uh, 2000, uh, in 1990, uh, the Republic of Namibia uh, was formed. And, of course, in 1994, uh, there was the democratic breakthrough, the independence of the Republic of South Africa, and uh, the ascendancy of the African National Congress to power in 1994. Let's listen to uh, some other analysis. Now, this is from... Um, the South African Broadcasting Corporation as well, Sophie McQuarrie, who is the Foreign Affairs Editor for the SABC. Let's listen. We begin here. Angola's uh, current uh, president, Joao Lorenco, has uh, declared five days of national mourning following the death of uh, former President José Eduardo Dos Santos. Uh, president Lorenco described Dos Santos as a unique figure of the Angolan homeland to which he dedicated himself from a very early age. The former president died at the Barcelona Technon Clinic uh, following a prolonged illness. Dos Santos had been receiving medical treatment since 2019, he ruled Africa's second biggest oil producer for nearly four decades and stepped down five years ago. His rule was marked by a brutal civil war lasting nearly three decades against the U.S.-backed UNITA rebels, which he won in 2002, and a subsequent oil-fueled boom. He was 79 years old. All right, we are now joined in studio by our international news editor, Sophie Mugwena, to speak more on the legacy of José Eduardo dos Santos. Uh, very good afternoon to you, Sophie. Uh, thanks for coming in. Let's talk about, you know, I've been looking at some of the uh, tributes for the late statesman, and, and I must say it's not all great. Um, one of the labels that are, you know, attributed or put to him is that of being a tyrant. Uh, is it wrong to, to label him in, in that way? Well, I think in terms of his legacy, it is a mixed bag. And, and I think those people who are critical about his legacy are justified to do so. Because much as he was a veteran liberation uh, soldier who fought as part of liberating Angola, but also contributing to the liberation of the frontline states such as South Africa and Namibia then, Unfortunately, uh, during his uh, tenure, there were issues that are questionable in terms of he how he conducted himself 
in his uh, style of leadership, but also on issues that are related to corruption. So, yes, indeed, he was this man who went to Moscow, got training there, sent there by MPLA to receive engineering uh, capacity or skills, particularly focusing on oil. That is why he was able to build Angola to be a formidable second largest country in terms of oil production. But uh, we know that there are reports right now his daughter who is facing criminal charges for fraud, corruption and money laundering in the United States of America and also in Portugal. And therefore, I think I understand uh, those who are critical where they come from. But the reality is he also played a very prominent role during the frontline state wars. You know that uh, uh, the South African government then worked with Jonas Savimbi to try and target the ANC uh, members, military members, that is, Kondowesizwe, who were in the camps in Angola. You know, after 1976, most of these students who left South Africa went to Tanzania, and some of them were sent to Angola. If you speak to people like Minister of Social Development, Lindwe Zulu, she will tell you a different story. Yeah. And I think the same with those who are in exile. And also fighting side by side with people like Chekovera. And very interestingly, I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, his contribution to the liberation, not only of his own country, but uh, uh, South Africa. But, and, 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 you know, we talk about the fact that his uh, MPLA party members um, spoke, to him, or spoke about him well, uh, calling him the architect, uh, the architect of, of, of peace. Uh, but it says something about these liberation movements and these liberation movements uh, that after they've liberated their people or helped to liberate their people, they then uh, start to have this legacy, which, you know, is increasingly tarnished by whether it's allegations of uh, rampant corruption and, and nepotism. And is he one of those that, you know, you could say is, and I, I, I lack for a better word, is a victim of this, where you, you come from this mm -hmm. uh, amazing history of being this liberator, but then you, you become corrupt and you become uh, what we essentially don't want. Exactly, you've yet off the road. I mean, when you look at his history, he did fight for the liberation of the southern region. But unfortunately, him working in this oil industry with expertise, at the end of the day, it was about his family, not the people in Angola. I remember I went to Angola, I think 18 years ago, and that time the Minister of Minerals and Energy, then Dr. Pumzilem Lambonunga, was in Angola to strengthen relations in terms of trade particularly focusing on energy. Mm -hmm. And when you leave the hotel, you see the people in the streets. I mean, it was so, for me, it was a cultural shock because much as we South Africans, uh, blacks in particular and Africans, have had a terrible history and where we come from, places are not as good as the ones you'd see in the township, mm -hmm. in the towns. But in the townships, our people are very neat and very organized under the same poverty, but when you go to Angola, it was shocking. I mean, I, I look at downtown Joburg and certain areas in Joburg, I see a picture of Angola that I saw in, 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 yeah, in was it 1998, mm -hmm. not uh, uh, 2018, 1998. I see that picture, and therefore, 
it is uh, uh, quite disturbing. You see that uh, leaders on the continent, many of them, when they have uh, achieved freedom, yes. they forget about their own people and they focus on their own families. We have lots of examples. I mean, you go to the DRC, you go to Zimbabwe, you go to the CAR, you have a similar story. And uh, he stayed in power for too long. Mm. People may argue that uh, the Western powers can't dictate to us in terms of the tenure of a sitting head of state. But when a person is in power for too long, we normally say power corrupts and absolute power and, corrupts. And, and I mean, that was 38 years that you speak of uh, yes. that he, he, he ruled. Um, okay, let's park maybe the negative aside. We've spoken about the positive in terms of um, the, the fact that the, his legacy of uh, liberation, but were there any gains, you know, in that 30, 38 years, you know, in, in terms of for the people? You talk about this poverty that even shocked you um, as, as a South African. I mean, can we truthfully say that there were any ways in which he alleviated po poverty, apart from his own people? Did he, uh, you know, alleviate any poverty at all is there's always a you know a, a good where there, where there is a bad what can we say in this i in think this for me case? building angola into a formidable force in terms of oil production he must get credit i mean today because of the war in ukraine yeah. you saw all those major superpowers particularly the g7 member countries are scrambling for oil and they are uh, talking to countries such as angola nigeria to get oil because they can't get oil from uh, Russia based on the sanctions and therefore he has built Angola to be a country on the continent we can rely on in terms of energy supply and oil and therefore I think he did that but uh, in terms of ordinary people he may have done some work to improve their lives but unfortunately towards the end it is just a story of corruption and money laundering and the daughter right now facing those charges mm -hmm. as we speak uh, he okay before he died he was not in good terms with the current president because the current president is trying to stamp out corruption right. other people would argue that he was part of the system because he's part of the mpla mm -hmm. it is a similar story to south africa and in africa. fact he was groomed by yes. Roberto santos yeah. exactly yeah. so in south africa we might have a similar situation where the governing party has the good and the bad men and women and therefore it is a mixed uh, reaction or a deck that is full of uh, different perspectives. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, many thanks to you, our international uh, news editor here at uh, SABC News, uh, Sophie Mugwena, weighing in on uh, the legacy of uh, the late statesman Eduardo Dos Santos. Welcome back. And of course, again, uh, we have the lacking analysis, and uh, we are here at the uh, Pan African Journal. Worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, let's listen to another uh, SABC analysis uh, in response uh, to the death of uh, Angolan President uh, Jose Eduardo de Santos, uh, who passed away yesterday at a hospital in Barcelona, Spain, at the age of uh, 79. Uh, Jose Eduardo de Santos uh, was a wartime president in Angola. Uh, he fought uh, the forces of uh, Central Intelligence Agency, the South African Defense Forces, uh, the entire imperialist uh, construct uh, internationally uh, after the death of uh, Dr. Agostino Neto, uh, who was the head of the uh, Papa Movement for the Liberation of Angola. Of course, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, 
took over in the aftermath of his transition and, of course, guided the country over uh, the next uh, decade uh, to end uh, the racist South African Defense Forces presence in Angola and also to bring about the national independence of the Republic of Namibia and to open up uh, the end of apartheid in the Republic of South Africa, uh, which entailed the release of Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, and Govan Mbeki, and many, many others uh, who uh, were locked up in South African dungeons, who were in exile, uh, returned to the country uh, after 1990. Let's listen to this final SABC uh, discussion about the uh, death of Angolan former President Jose Eduardo dos Santos. Let's return now to news of the passing of former President Jose Eduardo dos Santos and SABC News International reporter Kailisha Kumalo is with me. Kai, good evening to you and welcome. Of course, at a moment like this, mm. one of the first uh, questions is legacy. Well, that's right, uh, Iman, especially because, I mean, you, you go back to the 70s, you know, the, the role that he played in Angola with his rule really characterized by the, the, the civil war that really erupted in Angola. So at some point he was labeled as an architect of peace. But then a lot of things really just went wrong, where we saw rampant corruption. Some of his family members, you look at Isabel de Santos, at some point uh, heading Angola's oil company, his son as well, as well in so many cases of corruption. So uh, this is a man really with a mixed bag of reaction, uh, what you've been gauging from Angola. I mean, dying away from home as well, especially from a country that is seen as an oil-producing country, but, uh, you know, with a very uneven distribution of wealth. You talk about oil producers. It's Africa's uh, number two oil producer. Uh, and a lot of questions this evening, as unfortunate as they may be, is why did he have to go outside of the country? I believe he was re receiving medical, uh, uh, medical care outside his country since 2019. Um, you know, the, the picture of Africa, the wealth that is inherent in the country, not necessarily translating into the infrastructure. Well, that's right, uh, Iman. And also, I mean, for him, it's been very hard, especially since he stepped down. We saw his successor, President Lorenzo, really having this crackdown around corruption. So some of his very familiar members were implicated, the daughter. In fact, the son is currently in prison serving some charges for corruption and many other things as well. So he, he has been frequenting Barcelona for some time. So it was quite inevitable that this would be his best choice in terms of uh, receiving medical care. But also just apart from that, Iman, I mean, this is a man, you go back to the history of this country, who was able to open his arms, you know, just in terms of the frontline states, the likes of South Africa, in terms of Southwest Africa, present-day Namibia, in terms of their liberation. This was one of the very central characters in terms of paving the way for our independence. There's uh, some talk tonight, uh, Kailitle uh, via uh, Dos Santos is one of his daughters, about um, you know, the, the possibility of foul play. Um, I believe that they are asking for an autopsy to establish exactly the circumstances around his passing. Well, absolutely, Iman. So it's one of the daughters who's very concerned around these circumstances because they don't want the body to be taken to Angola immediately. So they want to really satisfy themselves to understand the circumstances. We know for the longest time, uh, Mr. Dos Santos has been battling with cancer 
but also there are family dynamics at play here with the daughter alleging that the wife, uh, the current wife, they were estranged. So she really wants to know really the, the real cause uh, behind uh, this particular death. Talk to us about um, the reaction of uh, his former colleagues and his peers. So it's quite interesting, Iman. I mean, you do have uh, South Africa's uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa saying that this was a gallant freedom fighter, talking about uh, the role that he played in the struggle, talking about the fact that, you know, this was a leader of MPLA, uh, you know, a party that at some point was pitted against uh, the, the apartheid South Africa, how they wished the war in the 80s, and really seeing quite a number of things but also you do have a Namibian president Hake Gengob as well saying a giant tree has fallen so United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres as well paying tribute and saying you know this was a man who was very instrumental in terms of supporting multilateral bodies really just enable, enabling Angola as a very central player in terms of brokering so many peace deals Final question, uh, Kailitle, given uh, the concerns around the circumstances of his passing, what do we know about funeral arrangements? Well, at this particular point in time, Iman, we, we're not sure, but uh, in terms of the developments back in Luanda, President Lorenzo has announced five days of mourning, and it happens at a very critical time in Angola because a lot of political parties are campaigning for the elections coming up in August, so all the political activities have been suspended to allow for for the nation to mourn. In fact, to cut uh, President Lorenzo, he said uh, he was one of the very important figures in terms of the country's politics, but also he governed at a very difficult time when Angola was waging this war where so many Angolans died and so many went into exile. Thank you so much for that and just uh, giving us some more detail, the life, the times and the legacy of uh, President uh, Eduardo dos Santos, uh, Jose Eduardo dos Santos. Thank you very much, Kailisa Kumano. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, we are listening uh, to various perspectives in regard to the passing of the former Angolan president, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, and they talk about the war. The war was against the racist uh, South African Defense Forces, the racist apartheid regime, which was overthrown in 1994, which was defeated militarily in 1998 in southern Angola. And, of course, uh, being backed uh, by not only the racist apartheid regime in South Africa, but also uh, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency and, of course, most of the uh, in the United States being the State Department, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, the capitalist corporations, etc. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, we're discussing uh, the recent uh, passing yesterday of former Angolan President Jose Eduardo dos Santos. He was a wartime president. He led the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, the sole legitimate liberation movement and revolutionary government of Angola. In 1975, uh, Cuban internationalists, with the support of progressive and revolutionary forces throughout Africa and the international community, intervened uh, to stabilize, to protect uh, the MPLA government in Luanda 
uh, beginning uh, in uh, November of 1975. And, of course, Cuban internationalist forces remained there until uh, early 1989, uh, nearly 14 years. Uh, They uh, had deployed uh, Fidel Castro, uh, 350,000 of his own people. Over the course of those 14 years, uh, Cubans who lost their lives on the battlefield in Angola, fighting against racism and apartheid. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the voice and music of uh, Candy Staten uh, with the song entitled Rock. You're listening to uh, the Pat African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, today is uh, Saturday, July 9th, uh, 2022. And as we talked about uh, last weekend, uh, it represented the 40th anniversary of the unjust incarceration of African-American journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in the United States. Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, is a veteran uh, member of the Black Panther Party. Uh, he was a student activist in Philadelphia during the late 1960s. He was a supporter of the MOVE uh, Revolutionary Organization in Philadelphia. And, of course, since being incarcerated in 1981, has continued to write incessantly and exhaustively, uh, as well as providing commentaries uh, to prison radio in regard uh, to the world, overall world situation. And, of course, uh, there's a new push uh, for the release of Mumia Abu-Jamal after 40 years in incarceration. A number of those years were spent on death row. An international movement was able to bring him off of death row, uh, yet uh, he was given life in prison with no chance of parole, uh, suffering from various health problems, and, of course, uh, the lack of concrete evidence in regard to uh, the situation on December 9th of 1981 in Philadelphia where Mumia Abu-Jamal was accused of killing uh, Philadelphia police officer Danny and Faulkner. And, of course, um, that struggle has continued now for well over 40 years. We want to listen to uh, a segment that was done by Mumia Abu-Jamal prior to his incarceration. This was done in 1979. And that was around the time that uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers were doing a tour of the United States. They came here to Detroit in December of 1979. And they were also in Philadelphia on the East Coast. Mumia Abu-Jamal had an opportunity to interview uh, Bob Marley and do this segment uh, back in 1979. Let's listen in to uh, an interview and a new segment on uh, the legendary Bob Marley uh, by Mumia Abu-Jamal. Here is a piece Mumia Abu-Jamal produced with his interview of Bob Marley. called Jamaica comes the Rastaman, reggae missionary Bob Marley, one of a growing number of Rastafarians, believers in the divinity of Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie, came to Philadelphia recently to talk about his music, his dreams, and Rastafari, a mystic religious community born in Jamaica back in 1930. No reggae artist in the world has attracted the loving accolades of the dreadlocked Marley. Marley is truly a missionary, and his message, one of global black redemption, is contained within the music of Rastafari. But there's an exodus, exodus from Babylon. We are the Babylon, and then the physical exodus to war. 
So what we really have to say is that we want the black people to unite with one another and, and deal with it. No, the only way we can unite is to unite about the truth. The truth is that King Solomon and King David is a root. And if we are, we are dealing with roots, we have to deal with from King Solomon and King David time. Lion of the tribe of Judah, you know. So, this is what I say. Time for unity. You know, because we are people, we have something and we have to deal with it. That's why I say, Jeff, on that. <laughs> Spiritual descendants of the Jamaican freedom fighters, Marines, who fled the plantations and set up rebel societies in the highlands, shunned the technological advances of the West. The West, they say, is Babylon, a land of unmitigated evil, greed, and other unsavory characteristics. They're a tribe of vegetarians, eating the fruit and herbs of the earth, not the meat of animal life. They see themselves as natural mystics, with a message for black people the world over. The music is hard, gutsy, bassy, and sprinkled liberally with a message. The unity of the globe's black peoples around the Rastafari. Rastafari was the name of Haile Selassie before he was coronated emperor of Ethiopia. When I come here, I want, I really desire for really get true to the people. I don't want to come here for joke. Yeah. When I come here, when I leave, I want the people them dreadlock, or so them a Rasta, and get the thing rebellious. That... We can't leave, you know, because we can't continue going on the same thing over and over and over and over again. But it's true. Rasta for the people. Rasta for the people. See? Capitalism and communism are finished. It's Rasta now. The black man, we have life. That's what we are saying, Ajay. We are saying, give the black man theme we are life now. Make him show you how government run and how people care for people. We think of the love. We sing the tune them in the church. The black people are singing them, you know. Who is a spiritual people upon earth? The black people. Them are dealing with God. And God not let them down. God did it. And God said them to unite. Because when you unite, that is the power of God. That you care. Music is militant, it's beat moving, it's message.
just is moving. Survival lurks at the heart of the Rasta message. Survival with little or no money. Survival with a supportive community, which only means survival with the spirit of love. Because, you know, it's a survival of our black people in Rasta, which are going to make the other people survive too. Because if a black man will survive, no one can survive. Learn that. And yet we don't make no weapon. But it's just that if we can survive, nobody else will <laughs> to Rasta. So when I come to America, I said, you the Madrid man. It make my heart feel strong. Yes. You stand up for your right. Yeah. Get up. A bit of history now. During the 1920s, Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa philosophy affected much of the thinking of the African diaspora of the Western Hemisphere. Nowhere was he more influential than in Jamaica, his island homeland. In one of his speeches, Garvey already revered as a prophet in Jamaica said, Look to Africa when a black king shall be crowned, for the day of deliverance is near. 1930 witnessed the splendorous coronation of Rastafari, an Ethiopian baron, as the Emperor Haile Selassie, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. Selassie was a direct descendant of David in a line of Ethiopian kings, stretching in unbroken succession from the time of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This event sent many religious Jamaicans to their Bibles, where they found support for this in Revelations, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and many other books. Before long, religious leaders on the island were saying that Garvey's prophecy has been fulfilled and preached to the people to consider Haile Selassie the living God and call themselves Rastafarais in his honor. You've heard the story of one Rastaman, Bob Marley, whose message, in essence, is a message of Rasta. That's survival. Bob Marley in Philadelphia. This is Mumia Abu-Jamal reporting for Uhuru Sound. Hail Ja Rastafarai. Welcome back. And that was a rare archival audio file on uh, interview and segment uh, with uh, the legendary Bob Marley being done by Mumia Abu-Jamal in 1979 prior to his incarceration. We'll listen to some Bob Marley and be back with our concluding segment. Generation 
And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, which is uh, Saturday, July 9th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to take you into a series of reports about developments taking place around the world. China Global Television Network. The world today is at a precipitous point. Conflicts raging in several countries are causing global ripples, negatively affecting the lives of people thousands of miles away. In trying to find lasting solutions to some of these global challenges, Chinese President Xi Jinping has proposed the Global Security and Global Development Initiative. These initiatives are aimed at fostering global security as a guiding principle, strengthening international cooperation and development, and accelerating the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So this week on Talk Africa, we take a closer look at the prevailing global security and economic environment and their effects on Africa. And we ask, how can the two proposed initiatives be implemented to bring about a safer global community with a greater focus on development? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. As part of China's drive to find lasting solutions to global development and security challenges, senior Chinese diplomat Yang Jiechi visited Pakistan, the United Arab Emirates, Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Now, while in Mozambique and Zimbabwe, he met with heads of state and discussed increasing mutual political trust, strengthening development initiatives and pushing forward bilateral cooperation. The countries also reaffirmed their commitment to the Belt and Road Initiative. The visit comes in the wake of Chinese President Xi Jinping's remarks at the 14th BRICS Summit in June, where he stressed the need to forge an inclusive, high-quality global development partnership and jointly foster a new era of global development featuring benefits for all. The visit to the two African countries affirmed the importance of safeguarding multilateralism, enhancing the comprehensive strategic partnership between China and Africa, and working together to ensure developing countries do not end up as victims of international crisis. Well, joining me now to take a closer look at some of the security challenges the world is facing and unpack the proposed global initiatives are Professor Rana Mita, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. From Beijing, Enoch Wong, Senior Manager, Online Education and International Cooperation, Tsinghua University. And from London, Dr. Frankton Chiyamura, Lecturer in International Development, Development Policy and Practice Group, School of Social Sciences and Global Studies at the Open University. Gentlemen, welcome to the program and thank you for joining in this discussion. I want to get a first assessment from all of you very briefly because it is fair to say that the world is facing a crisis in the international political, economic and security order with unprecedented challenges to peace and development. First, 
Let me get your assessment of the state of the world today. What current global developments have become major points of concern? Professor Mita. The first one is climate change. We uh, hear more or less about this, depending on what's in the daily headlines. Sometimes when there are wars, which of course are horrific events, which are, are going to affect many millions of people, we hear less about the long-term effects of climate change. But over time, climate change is clearly the factor which is changing the way in which everything from environment, environment to economics is changing around the world. So that's factor number one. Number two, if we're going to point out things that are happening because of the current global crisis, I would put famine or at least malnutrition, very much at the heart of what is troubling us. Right now, because in particular of the Russia-Ukraine war, there's a real difficulty with the export of grain to a whole variety of key markets, including in North Africa, for instance. And that is an issue that really must be addressed very, very quickly to prevent mass malnutrition and starvation in many very, very hungry parts of the, the world. So I give you those two to start with. Enoch, your thoughts? Um, I cannot agree more with uh, with my colleague there, but I want to take a step back and say COVID-19 really is the big concern. It, it, it's, it's spreading human suffering, destabilizing the global economy, and really upending lives of billions of people around the world. Uh, the pandemic is uh, is an unprecedented you know, wake-up call in, in, in some sense, laying bare really deep inequalities and exposing precisely the threat and failures that, uh, that are addressed in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and, as mentioned, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. So I think it's a great framework, critical framework for COVID-19 recovery that, sh that can lead to greener, more inclusive economy and stronger, more resilient society. So in short, I think that the biggest threat or concern is the tremendous progress loss for sustainable development goes due to COVID-19. And we can take action now to turn the recovery into real opportunity to do things right for the future. All right, uh, Dr. Chiyamura. Perhaps maybe as a way of responding to this, to sort of take a step back and think about, you know, this interesting book which was written by Pascal Lamy and Nicole Ernesto on this strange new world, which tried to capture some of these global uncertainties that we find ourselves in. I'm particularly interested in the conclusion chapter of this book where they ask where is the world headed? And I think it does provide a very relevant and useful analysis to help us understand the future in the present. I mean, for one, we know that there are current geoeconomic and geopolitical forces, and to some extent, the way these forces interact with each other, they may have potential outcomes that arguably may be you know, dangerous or may be negative to certain uh, people in certain places or spaces. This range from, I think, you know, the compounding effects, which uh, uh, Professor Nita has already spoke about, the climate change, right. you know, the, the impact of COVID-19. I think in addition to that, the rising cost of living, debt, inflation, energy and food insecurity. And obviously, you know, it goes without say, you know, the reemergent conflict in Ukraine and, you know, among others, such as those in Africa, the Horn of Africa to be precise, uh, in Yemen, Sahel, and the Sahel region. So these are all global crises that our generation are facing and definitely affecting the way uh, we interact as uh, civilization. Dr. Chiyamura, let me stay with you for the moment because you've mentioned uh, geopolitical forces and you know, creating global uncertainties and we are not sure where the world is headed. How much of these events are destabilizing the current work order? Would you say there is a, an emergent new um, order as a result of the geopolitical forces? Well, maybe to begin with, there have been 
this sort of implication that I talk about, these uncertainties, so to say, uh, they are broad, they are, uh, they are catastrophic, and the implications perhaps will have to do with aspects around the commodity markets, uh, supply chains, uh, financial securities at various scales. This could be at an individual, at a regional, national, international. And the most common challenge amongst these is that they impact everyone, regardless of location. You could be rich, you could be poor, but I suppose maybe they are more felt by those in the global south. So the question of whether there's a new global order emerging is an interesting one. I think we've had this discussion for quite some time. I think I would say for the past decade or so, of course, there are signs and symptoms um, that a new uh, world order is emerging, particularly if you want uh, led by a rising power such as China. And I think there are two sides to this question, really. On the one hand, so we have some analysts saying that the rising powers um, if you want, not and how different from the traditional powers in the sense that such countries are driven by their own geopolitical and um, geoeconomic interests. Right. But increasingly, I think on the other hand, uh, we have seen that the rising powers have, if you want, uh, developed the means, um, the capability, as well as the resources to balance out, if not challenge the dominance of traditional um, uh, powers, particularly around international norms and practices. Sorry, let me jump in there, Dr. Chiamura, and get Enoch's view here. You know, Enoch, in terms of trying to deal with these global uncertainties or all these issues that have been mentioned by the three of you, let's look at what is balancing out here, according to Dr. Chiamura. You know, is there credence to suggestions that perhaps there's a new way um, of dealing with these issues? There is a new order now emerging. What is your view? Uh, absolutely, I, I would hope so. <laughs> I, I, I think when we look at the global order or the definition of it, we really emerged after the Cold War, and there, and there are a group of countries we, we call the West that are trying to capitalize on the Cold War dividend, right? They try to maintain their advantages, and by creating this asymmetric and unfair advantage over developing countries, and, and let me say it's very undemocratic in, in that sense. But I think there's a new emerging order that that, that are driven by common needs, that are driven by common desire, but not common enemy. Yes, uh, there is diversity. Yes, there's differences, but it's driven by the needs of development. I think there's less about protecting, there's more about progressing. Uh, and, and I think that's what this new emerging order is about. Right. Uh, Dr. Chiyamura, I want to bring this conversation back to where uh, we are today. And, you know, you know, I haven't mentioned all, uh, you know, the areas uh, that the world is struggling to deal with the challenges. Where do you see the world headed in, in terms of coming back to your question of where are we headed? Well, this is, I think, a, a very obvious um, sort of response to this question in the sense that we all know that if we don't do certain things, where will the world be? I mean, it's clear that if we don't design some policies or if we don't come up with some frameworks around global governances, then we are headed for, um, for disaster. You know, I think uh, maybe try to think around this is this sort of recent uh, proposal which was made uh, by Xi Jinping last year, if I'm not mistaken, at the um, General Assembly at the United Nations, where he sort of started thinking about this idea of global development initiative, and, and quite recently as well, the, this idea of global security initiative, which I think for me, um, Obviously, maybe the devil is in the details, but I think it's, it's a step in the, in the right direction of trying to come up with some mechanisms that are perhaps um, inclusive and that have this commonality um, as sort of the uni, unifying element uh, of it. And obviously, I think it does recognize that the current, uh, if you want, global institutions of governance, they uh, seem to be kind of weak in responding to some of these challenges.
Right. Uh, Enoch, let me get your thoughts on what uh, Dr. Chiamura has said here. Because when you look at who is dealing with what, and clearly the repercussions for international development as a result of the event you've mentioned have been massive over the last two years. What is the role here, though, of the multilateral system in all of this? Are we seeing a far much weaker global institutions unable to deal with these global challenges? For example, the United Nations, does it still hold a position it once did in the multilateral world? I think that there is a desire for multilateral system to play its role. Uh, but unfortunately, for example, you mentioned United Nations. I want to use a, an example which has been on the news quite a lot lately, the NATO. Uh, I think uh, it, it, it was once, you know, there, there, there was once hope that it could be a Western-led world order after the Cold War ended and could make the world safer. But it, it, in the past, it really has exposed itself to be anything but what it claims. I think it really is a monstrous 20th century Cold War relic. And, and it keeps provoking conflict as long as I, I think it exists. And it continues to break its promise by expanding it uh, uh, eastward. So, so I think it, it, is, it is a multilateral system that, that is not doing what it's supposed to, besides the fact that it is the world supreme violator for the UN Charter itself and human rights. But they really doesn't have much respect of the international law, particularly with behavior that created the condition for, for, for the Russian U Ukraine conflict. So, so, so I think um, there, there's a lot that can be done, but then we need to set up a system that we can, we can follow the rules by in order for the system to work. All right. Uh, Professor Mita, going by uh, what NATO how NATO is behaving in the recent past, though. Is this a continuation of the Cold War mentality? What's your view there? No, actually, what has been happening with NATO is a very strong adaptation in terms of contemporary circumstances. So it's worth noting that, of course, Ukraine, which has been invaded recently by Russia, was not a NATO member. And, of course, there's a strong argument that if you're Latvian, if you're Lithuanian, if you're living in the Baltics, then right now NATO membership is one of the things that's protecting you from the possibility of a Russian invasion in turn. So I think you have to sometimes remember history. An awful lot of people who live in Eastern Europe from the 1940s onwards have a strong memory of being invaded by what was then the Soviet Union, as well as by Nazi Germany. And that experience of repeated invasion by authoritarian states is one of the things that's turned people in the direction of wanting some kind of mutual protection. And I think if you're looking for successors to NATO, or ways to adapt it, that understanding that small countries, and uh, in China there's always been this uh, uh, idea, actually a very long time, of understanding the mentality of how small and weak countries need to be protected. Right. That's the motivation, of course, that keeps many people in NATO. So I think one of the things that's really important at the moment is to understand how people see themselves and not simply judge from outside. And that explains a great deal of why so many Europeans value NATO now more than they ever did before. Enoch, what's your view here? How, how do you view you know, the way these multilateral institutions are behaving in this century? So I think, first of all, I think peace, dialogue and justice are really the only way out. I don't think any country should be adding fuel and fire and in intensifying confrontation Instead, I think countries should call for ceasefire and end the conflict by supporting Russia and Ukraine in carrying out direct dialogue. I think that's first. Second, Cold War mentality should never, ever be promoted. What I mean by that is that no country should be forced into a friend or foe camp confrontation. Uh, we should firmly promote international solidarity and, and, and advocate a vision of common, co cooperative, comprehensive and sustainable security and respecting a common day legitimate rights 
for sovereignty and, and territory integrity, according to the UN. And that's very important, according to what is agreed by the, the, the common uh, um, uh, community, especially, as my colleague mentioned, uh, small and developing countries that we have to protect. Dr. Chiyamura, Africa tends to get caught in the middle um, of, of all these events, even though it is uh, a bystander you know, in terms of participation. What do you feel here, though? Is there a continuation of a Cold War mentality happening here? I mean, how is Africa navigating itself out of all this? Yeah, well, the, the, the situation in Ukraine is very unfortunate, and I think it does sort of attest to this idea of the world regressing rather than progressing. And, I mean, for me, the way I would like to look at it, perhaps, is to sort of look at the, con at the conflict from a vantage point of the impact, uh, particularly in Africa. You know, um, recently, when um, the chairperson of the African Union, uh, with Musa Faki Muhammad, was sort of passing a speech on the Africa Day commemoration, I quote, he said that Africa has become the collateral victim of a distant conflict, uh, that between Russia and Ukraine. Um, so he continues saying, um, this conflict has upset the fragile global geopolitical and uh, geostrategic balance and is casting a harsh light on the structure of fragility of our economies. Uh, indeed, uh, being aware that um, Russia and Ukraine they play a very, very big role, particularly around uh, food exports to Africa. And I think the sort of the Ukraine Russia conflict is sort of exacerbating the already existing, you know, sort of uh, fragilities, one of them obviously being the, um, the effects of COVID pa uh, pandemic. And again, uh, the climate change, which Professor Mita talked about at the start of this meeting, but worryingly, worryingly, the rising public debt pressures. Um, and would know that in Africa at the moment, I think majority of close to, I won't say majority, almost all of African countries are at a stage where they are almost about to reach debt, uh, uh, debt distress. So definitely, you know, these uncertainties are one way or the other affecting um, African. And indeed, there is need, therefore, for designing some mechanisms and policy intervention that should sort of cushion or if need be provide solutions to some of these challenges for African countries. All right. We are going to look at those solutions in just a moment. Dr. Chiyamura Inok Wong and Professor Mita, do stay with us. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll take a closer look at the proposed initiatives and how they can be implemented. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me are Professor Rena Mita, Enoch Wong, and Dr. Frankton Chiyamura. Before the break, we looked at the current state of the global economic and security environment. Let's now look at the proposed initiatives and provide some solutions to global uncertainties. Enoch, I want us to expound on some of the uh, responses uh, to this events that we have just mentioned and uh, just go back last year at the UN General Assembly where Chinese President Xi Jinping proposed a global development initiative to steer global development. At the Boal Forum in China in April, President Xi also proposed a new global security initiative. Explain your understanding of these initiatives and why they have become central to China. 
my understanding of those initiatives is that it really is an expansion of what President Xi Jinping mentioned about changes that are seen in a century. Um, there's a recognition that the world is changing. There's a recognition that history might change. There's a generational change that is happening. As guests have mentioned, there's changes in climate and biodiversity. There's geopolitical and conflict uh, that's happening. There's pandemic and global health challenges that's affecting everyone, not just some countries. Um, so therefore, really, uh, upon a very, very successful uh, Belt and Road Initiative, there is a proposal of something called the Global Development Initiative and then later Global Security Initiative. And those two really go for me, go hands in hands. It's based on a cooperation and common values of development. And the reason why I, I, I think it goes hand in hand is because there, there's no really, there's no development and, and, unless there's security. And it, unless there's a security of protection and structure, you cannot really conserve um, uh, the results of development. Um, so therefore, those two initiatives go hand in hand to really uh, secure a, a globalized world order um, that, is, that, that is driven by supply, industry, and value chain across the whole entire world. Uh, those are uh, initiatives that can help us uh, to address some, some of the systematic risks that we are facing, whether we are developing or developed country. Um, and, and last but not least, um, the, the eight areas from the Global Development Initiative and the six commitments from the Global Security Initiative, those are things that come out of expertise and experience um, and consolidation of that. Um, and, and it's a constant changing and iteration dialogue that has been happening uh, throughout. Professor Mitter, let me wrap you in here because there is clearly um, a need to look at, uh, you know, the security challenges and the development challenges uh, facing the, uh, the globe today. What's your reaction to what you've heard? I want to hone in on one and just make clear how central I think it is. And that is security around energy. Because if you don't have energy security, then the economic growth that we've been talking about throughout the entire program simply can't progress. In other words, if we're looking at the emergence particularly of new and emerging markets, it could be in sub-Saharan Africa, it could be Latin America, it could be South, Southeast Asia and elsewhere, then that growth is going to have to be real to deal with the economic crisis that the world is in. But it also has to be green. Franklin did mention this briefly, but I want to really drill in, drill in on this point. It is going to be absolutely essential to find much, much greener forms of energy if we're not going to succumb to the climate change disaster that is clearly heading towards the world. So fossil fuels, I think it's clear across the world now, are going to have right. to be out, out as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, we have to think, first of all, what is the future in the short term we have to say for nuclear energy? And secondly, beyond that, what are the real capabilities of technology that enables us to see a proper renewable and green energy sector? Now, China certainly certainly has a role in that particular story, but it's one that it also has to have and will have, I'm sure, in cooperation with other growing tech powers, including India. I want to mention Turkey, which is often not mentioned very much, but actually is a very important economic actor in its own right and has a role in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as in many parts of, of Asia. And of course, the wider Western world, which has still a tremendous amount to offer in terms of renewables. This is the sort of area where cooperation is not just desirable, it's absolutely essential. And it's at the heart of all the other brilliant goals that my two fellow guests have mentioned. I want to come back to you, uh, Dr. Cherimura, because you, you did mention uh, about where Africa is going to be when it comes to security and, and development. And, you know, these geographical, geopolitical events are showing that today no country or no continent can face the global challenges alone. And uh, Yang Jiechi, 
um, you know, who's a member of the political bureau of the CPC Central Committee, was in Africa this week. China has also recently convened a Horn of Africa Peace and Development Conference. What do you think the underlying message from China is as the world faces these global headwinds, particularly the underlying message for Africa? In terms of whether this initiative will really contribute to a difference, I think for me it's a bit too early to tell, uh, particularly around, you know, if indeed they will contribute to a more secure and more balanced uh, global development world. But I think based on sort of the previous, um, based on the assessment, I think, of the ongoing or previous Chinese-driven initiatives, I mean, the one in the case in point here is the Belt and Road Initiative. I think there's scope and hope for changing the world. And I think, however, the question therefore will be around uh, the exact details and particularly the governing structure around this initiative and how those who perhaps come from a different worldview or from an ideological viewpoint that is different to theirs see this. Is it a threat? Is it an opportunity? And therefore, how would China try to convince those who may have a totally different viewpoint around these initiatives? All right, uh, Professor Mita, is this a threat? Is this an opportunity? What's your take? There are very few things in the world that are either simply threats or opportunities. I think what it is is more an acknowledgement that the sources of global influence are changing in the world, whether that's economic security, military security, even changes in the way in which global governance are taking part. The whole variety of different actors, including from the global south, are going to have to be included. And I think the most important thing at the moment is to be thinking ahead of time in the way in which the countries which are going to be the major new powers of the next generation. We already have the United States, China, the European Union pretty much sitting at the top table. So the question of who is going to be in the next list of um, uh, upcoming uh, uh, countries, and South Africa I think is going to be one very good example of how that might, uh, might emerge, that is the kind of forward thinking that the global order has to do. We sometimes get so caught up with our everyday problems on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't spend enough thinking, time thinking about where the future is going to come. And that will be a really, really important part of any initiative when it comes to international security to think about what comes next. And I want to wind up on that note of what comes next. Um, uh, Dr. Chiyomura, I'll start off with you. What kind of security concept do you think the world needs right now? In your view, how can countries achieve that common security and common development? Well, I think it goes without saying that in each and every conflict situation, um, if it's a political problem, then you obviously need political solutions to it. Uh, if it's another problem driven by maybe economic needs or economic interests, then you should find some solutions that have to do with the cause of that particular conflict. And I think interestingly and increasingly, there is that need, therefore, to either continue to reform the existing multilateral institutions of governance, but I suspect that there could be um, an element of resistance, particularly from those traditional development powers who have vested interested interest in these um, institutions. But I think equally we also have to think about creating new institutions um, that if you want are responsive and they do understand this different context, uh, particularly those coming from the global south. And then the idea therefore is sort of tied to what uh, Enoch said earlier on, uh, that what unifies them is common needs, common desire and common goals, not necessarily common threats or enemies. All right. Well, Professor Misa, your thoughts? I think the most useful mind exercise, thought exercise, that we can do in the near future as countries and as citizens is to put ourselves in the minds of those who we think are sitting opposite us on the other side. And this is a very useful exercise in national capitals. I'd like to think that people in New Delhi 
are thinking about what people in Islamabad think, because Pakistan and India are two major countries in the Asia context who often don't spend enough time thinking about what the other things. People in Beijing need to be thinking about how things look from the point of view of Washington. People from the point of view of Washington need to understand how the world looks from Beijing. And all of those actors, I think, need to spend a lot more time thinking about the places which are up and coming in the global south, but have still disappeared from the view in the global north. I'd like to have more people thinking about the view from Brasilia, from Lusaka, from Jakarta, from a whole variety of places that are going to be tremendously important in 5, 10, 20 years' time, but which even... Welcome back, and uh, that was a discussion on uh, the overall global situation, uh, and that's going to be all the time we have uh, for today. You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, today is Saturday, July 9th. Uh, 2022 and of course uh, we're going to be uh, signing off uh, here with the music of uh, Hank Mobley uh, from the album entitled Another Workout this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week
Thank you. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.